Well, if you happen to be a guest of ours, you're watching the first time here uh, in London or there in Somerset or you're somewhere online, uh, we've been in a series for most of the summer that we're calling Greatest Hits. And the reason we're calling it Greatest Hits is we are revisiting and retelling some of the greatest stories of the Old Testament. And for many of us who grew up in church, these are stories that we have heard over and over and over again since childhood. Now, for some of us, uh, this is the first time that we've been introduced to these stories because we're brand new to faith, we're brand new to the church, and we're brand new uh, to the scriptures. Uh, but whether you've heard these stories over and over again, or whether this is the first time you've heard some of these stories, the important thing uh, to know is that all of these stories that we've talked about and all the stories that we could have talked about out of the Old Testament, they have the potential uh, to inspire within you and within me bigger faith, and they also carry with it the capacity to instruct us towards better faith. And so we could have talked about so many more things, but we're gonna draw the series uh, a close today, and then we're gonna be starting something else different next week, so I'd love for you to be here for that. But let me talk about a tendency to get us going in the direction that we're headed today. There's a tendency when it comes to New Testament followers of Jesus, and that would be us, New Testament followers of Jesus and how they interact and how they relate to and what they think about the Old Testament. Now, this series has been about some of those well-known stories out of the Old Testament. And the tendency is that we were first introduced to those in our childhood, but many of us, we have fallen into the tendency of ignoring those stories that we once loved with our childhood version of faith. We, not, you know, we don't so much love them anymore to the same degree with our adult version of faith. Because when we look back now with adult eyes and adult ears and an adult brain and a brain that's read a few books and we've talked to a few people, and now we know the rest of the stories back there in the Old Testament. You know, they only told us certain ones in Sunday school and they only told us certain ones you know, in youth group. Uh, they kept a lot of the hairy ones out of there. But then as we got older and we heard about all the stories and we heard about the rest of the story, there was just a lot of things back there in the Old Testament that is a bit confusing and then to go back and read it and to try to make sense of it it's a bit intimidating and really just honestly there's some of the content back there in the Old Testament is just a bit troubling we, we just can't make sense of it and it bothers us because we can't figure out why God made a law about this and why would God say this and why didn't God why was he more clear and why would God you know judge that people and why would God give a pass to that person and all of these things which are the Old Testament all of those things cause us to be a bit confused confused, a bit intimidated, and to find the whole thing just a little bit troubling. And so here's what happens. Us New Testament followers of Jesus, we tend to distance ourselves from the Old Testament many times with our adult version of faith. We would rather stay within the red letter in the Jesus biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We would rather read the letters of Paul, Peter, what James said. And so we often find ourselves putting distance in between us and the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, the New Testament consistently consistently points New Testament followers of Jesus back to the Old Testament because the Old Testament is valuable and it is helpful. This is what Paul said about it. He says, for everything, everything. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but everything means everything. For everything that was written in the past, and he's talking about in the Jewish scriptures. The Jewish scriptures, that's what we call the Old Testament. He says, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. That is to say that the Old Testament has something to teach us. That there are things that we need to know. There are things that we need to learn from the Jewish scriptures. He says, it was written to teach us so that through endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And, and this is huge because everybody wants hope. And the Apostle Paul, he takes New Testament believers 
And he points them back to the Old Testament. And he says, don't allow there to be distance between you and the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, you're going to find instruction. You're going to find hope in the pages of the Old Testament. So don't walk away from the Old Testament because there's some things that you don't necessarily like and there's some things that you don't necessarily understand and you have some questions and there's some parts that bother you and there's some parts that just seems a bit hard to believe. He says, don't allow the parts of the Old Testament that bother and trouble and confuse and intimidate you to keep you away from the whole of the New Testament because it has the potential to bring you hope. Paul would also say this. He said that all scripture... And what he's talking about is the Old Testament. He's not talking about the New Testament. The New Testament is still being written when Paul says this. Some of the New Testament has not yet even been written when Paul writes this. Now think about this for a second. The only Bible that the New Testament authors had was the Old Testament. The only Bible that the writers of the New, Test New Testament had access to was the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. And Paul says that all scripture is God-breathed. That means inspired, that God in some way moved upon the hearts and the creativity and the intelligence of people in the past to write things down, to record stories as they happened, events as they took place, to write down songs, to write down the records of kings, to write down how a kingdom rose and a kingdom fell, to write about invasions and to write about armies and to write about families and to write about fathers and to write about marriages and to write about all of those things that God was putting together a record, that God was writing a story and that God inspired people to write these events down, not even knowing the totality of impact that their writings would have. Because when all of the writings would come together, it was going to tell the story of God, this epic cosmic story story that God wanted to tell the world. He says it's useful. The Old Testament is useful. It means it's helpful for teaching. That's to tell you what's right. For rebuking, that's to let you know what's wrong. For correcting, that's how to make things right. And finally, training in righteousness, that's how to stay right. And who of us doesn't want to know right from wrong. If you don't want to know right from wrong, then there's a problem. He says the Old Testament is a great place to begin to be taught what is right and what is wrong, how to make things right if they are wrong, and how to stay right. He says it is useful. He says New Testament faith should never cause you to abandon the Old Testament. Even though the Old Testament was your favorite version as a child, your childhood version of faith loved the Old Testament. Stories of David and Goliath, Noah's Ark, Adam and Eve, all of that stuff as a child. It seemed so believable and it seemed so real. And you got to color the pages and you got to see it on flannel graph and you got to put the DVD or the VHS in there and you got to watch it animated out. It was incredible. And it seemed so real and so believable to you. But then you grew up and you talked to some people and you took a class and you read a book or you heard a podcast and you talked to some friends and, and all of a sudden you felt a bit embarrassed with your New Testament faith because it was connected to some of the things in the Old Testament. All of a sudden, Adam and Eve was Adam and Eve and the story of a talking snake. It's like talking snake. Who wants to talk to their unbelieving friends about a talking snake? That just makes you sound like a nut job. I mean, just a crackpot. I mean, you don't want to believe in something like that as an adult. And so all of a sudden, you don't want to talk about that. And you don't want to read it because it just seems now so far away. And it seems a bit unbelievable. And, and then there's stories about Noah and a global flood. And he builds a boat. I mean, a boat, really. And his family gets in and saves the family and ultimately saves the world. And then there's stories like Moses. And we loved Moses as a child. But then, you know, 
to think about Moses going up on the mountain and he meets with God and God takes his finger and writes the Ten Commandments, you know, on a rock, a stone, and then he brings it back down. And that just, all of a sudden with our adult reasoning and our adult intelligence, it just, you know, we just don't like to talk about it because it's so supernatural. It's so miraculous. And we live in a world that's so predictable and we don't anticipate anything miraculous. And, and it just, it's just something we don't want to talk about. It's something we don't want to make conversation about. We don't study it because it doesn't seem relevant. And then there's the story of Jonah and the fish that we've talked about. It's like, you know, come on, three days and three nights and a fish, and you live to tell it. And then David and Goliath, and we've never even seen a giant before, and there's parted seas and parted rivers, and there's fire from heaven. And it's, you know, it's like all of that stuff. And then as an adult, we find ourselves distancing ourselves from the Old Testament to which the New Testament continually says, don't do that. Don't rob yourself. Don't shortchange your faith by distancing yourself and refusing to study, refusing to read, and being a student of the Old Testament because it is such a big deal. Now, I understand how you feel about those things. I understand that some of it seems just a bit far-fetched, but you need to know this, that the Old Testament would be unrealistic and unbelievable if it wasn't so realistic and believable. It would seem unrealistic and unbelievable if it wasn't so realistic and believable. And here's what I'm talking about. When you read through the pages of the Old Testament and then you open up the newspaper today, what you find is the very same humanity. You find the very same men, the very same women, the very same authorities, the very same monarchs, the very same generals today as what you read in the pages of the Old Testament. It is so realistic, it is so believable because it is the story of humanity. In the Old Testament, we find men and women who abuse and misuse authority at the expense of weaker people. Turn on the television, listen to the news. That happens today. It's still the same world because we're ultimately all the same people. You read through the Old Testament and you find stories of people who misused and abused, who oppressed, who was violent who took people captive. We find stories about people who were just slow to learn from their mistakes, right? You wouldn't know anybody like that, would you? Slow to learn from their mistakes. Like they keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. We find people that are violent, that are angry. We find folks that are slow to believe. We find people that are quick to believe. We find people that are duplicitous. We find people that have roller coaster faith. They're up and then they're down. They're in and they're out. We find the very same things that we find today in the Old Testament and the stories that it tells. It still doesn't change the fact that it's troubling. Some of the stuff's troubling. It still doesn't change the fact that some of it's just downright uncomfortable and some of it even confusing. But let me help you understand the Old Testament. And let me help you understand the value of the Old Testament for you as an individual. Its relevance, its beneficialness, its usefulness for you. Here it is. The Old Testament contains the history of one nation. If you wanna know what the Old Testament's all about, the Old Testament contains the history of one nation and a promise that was made to all the nations. That's what the Old Testament is about. The Old Testament is the history of one nation and a promise that that nation carried that would be delivered to all the nations. And that's why you should care about the Old Testament. Why else would New Testament Jesus followers care about the Jewish scriptures anyway? If the Jewish scriptures had nothing to do with us, then why would we care about it? If it wasn't useful, if it wasn't for our advantage, if it wasn't for our betterment, why would a bunch of Gentiles, and that's us, non-Jewish folks, why would a bunch of Gentiles even care about the Jewish scriptures? It's because the Old Testament is a history. It is the history of one nation, 
the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. It is the history of one nation that carried within it a promise that was going to be delivered to all the nations. And all the nations is you. And all the nations is me. All the non-Jewish folks, all the Gentile folks, that's you and me. Because the Old Testament isn't just part of the story. It's a part of your story. The Old Testament just isn't part of the story of God, the story that God is trying to tell the world. It is part of your story. Your story and my story begins within the pages of the Old Testament. Because you are a part of the story that God is writing, and I am a part of the story that God is writing. It is cosmic, it is epic, and God wanted it to be so clear that you would be so overwhelmed by the clarity by which he tells this story. That when you find yourself in this story, that it quite possibly would change your life. So the Old Testament, when the Old Testament begins, it begins with the history of the world. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the creation account goes on to how we are introduced to our very first parents, Adam and Eve. That God created Adam and God created Eve and he put them right in the midst of a perfect garden called Eden, right? Remember that from Sunday school? He put them right in the midst of a perfect world, a perfect garden called Eden. And he told them, he says, you can have the whole world. You can have the whole world, but there's one thing you can have. It's the tree. It's that tree right over there. You can't eat from that tree. And when God told Adam and Eve that they couldn't have that one tree, what was the one thing that Adam and Eve wanted? <laughs> that one tree. Because we have always been the same people. Humanity has not changed. Humanity has not shifted. In our hearts, we have always wanted what we were told we shouldn't have. That would not be healthy for us, that would undermine our future, that would undermine our happiness, that would undermine our dreams. We have always wanted the things that somehow in the end harmed us. And so it begins with Adam and Eve, and they screwed things up in a perfect world, right? God says, you can't have it. They wanted it, so they ate from the tree, right? Which is encouragement for all of us because we have screwed things up many times in an imperfect world. But our first parents were the only ones who managed to screw things up in a perfect world. That's like a whole other thing. When you can mess everything up, when everything's perfect, that's what Adam and Eve did. They sinned against God, and then they went and hid because they realized that they were naked. And Genesis says that they were ashamed by it. And then God comes along and says, Adam, where art thou? Adam, where art thou? And God didn't need help, and he wasn't trying to play Marco Polo, and it wasn't hide-and-go-seek. God was just trying to get Adam to understand, Adam, why are you now running from me? Adam, why all of a sudden when we've walked together and we've talked together and we've had unbroken fellowship relationship with one another. Why all of a sudden are you and Eve running from me? Why are you hiding from me? And it was in the moment that Adam and Eve sinned that sin entered into the world. And everything that we hate about the world, everything that we dislike and would change about the world came into the world on the hills of sin. Injustice, oppression, violence, pride, dishonesty, betrayal, all the things that we would change about the world that we've experienced that harmed us and hurt us came on the hills of sin. And destruction and disruption came with sin. And ultimately, 
destruction came with sin because sin in the end always kills. And wherever there is sin, there will always be death. And so death entered into the world. But here was the good news. And this is where the story from the very beginning, the very moment that disgrace entered into the human story, God offered grace. From the very moment that man felt disgraced, God offered grace. And there in Eden, God sacrificed animals and he clothed Adam and Eve. And from the very beginning of the story, we find that God was proving his love through sacrifice. By the sacrifice of life, God was proving his love to his creation. And he sacrificed animals and he clothed their nakedness. And not only that, but he offered to them there in the garden in the midst of their disgrace. Once he clothed them, he offered them a promise. And he said, one day, I will send a hero. I will send a deliverer. I will send a savior who will be the seed of a woman. And he will make right everything that sin has made wrong. And all the death and all the destruction that sin has brought with us, when he comes, this hero, this Messiah, this deliverer, he will make it all right again. And from the very beginning, God whispers a promise concerning a savior. Adam and Eve leave the garden. When they leave the garden, they have children. Three of their children, three of their sons we know were Cain, Abel, and Seth. We know from Sunday school, right, many of us, that Cain killed Abel. But God was so painstaking in his meticulous nature of how he wanted you and me to know how clear this promise would be and how much he loved you and how much he wanted you to know that you are part of this story and that you have been part of this story from the very beginning. God said, I don't want you to miss this savior. I don't want you to miss this Messiah. So when I send Messiah, not only will he descend from Adam and Eve, but he will not descend from Cain. Abel is dead. But when this Messiah comes, when this savior comes, he will come as a descendant of Seth. So when you look for him, make sure that he is a descendant of Seth and not Cain. So God eliminated the whole line of Cain as a possibility from which the Messiah would come. Now, we know according to all that boring history that many of us don't like to read, all of those pedigrees and family trees and genealogies that we think, what relevance is there and, and why is that in there and that's so boring. We know that according to this family dynamic that exists through Genesis, that God said not only is he coming from Adam and Eve, but he's coming as a descendant of Seth. Now, a descendant of Seth that you may have heard about is a guy by the name of Noah. Noah was a descendant of Seth. And of course, we know Noah's story, that God, he saw that the world was wicked, and he said, Noah, you, you, you do something to my heart. You, you, you know, I, I just want to be gracious to you. There's something about you. And so, not that he deserved it. It says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so, God bestowed grace upon Noah, told him it was going to flood. He built this boat. His family got on board. God shut the door. And at the other end of the flood, when it was dry ground again, we are told the history of the repopulation of the earth after the flood. And that all of humanity now descends from Noah's three sons, which were Ham, Japheth, and a son named Shem. 
And God wanted us to know that this promise that he first made in Eden was still alive, still active, that God planned on keeping his promise. So he says, when I send Messiah, he will not come from Ham and he will not come from Japheth, but when the Messiah comes, look for him in the line of Sham as a descendant of this particular son of Noah. And as history plays out in Genesis, we are brought face to face with one of Shem's descendants that you have probably heard of as well. His name was Abraham. And God came to Shem's descendant by the name of Abraham and God made Abraham a promise. It is the same promise that he first whispered in the Garden of Eden. And God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, one day all peoples, just not Jewish people, all peoples, do you know what that means? That means you, that means me, because the Old Testament just isn't part of the story. It is part of our story. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham, one day I'm gonna make you the father of a family. The family's gonna become a nation, and one day somebody out of that nation is gonna bless the world. So Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And God made the promise to Isaac that it would be through his lineage, not his brother Ishmael, that the Messiah would come. God wanted us to be clear. God wanted us to see how meticulous he is in making sure that this promise came to pass. Isaac would have two children, one by the name of Esau and one by the name of Jacob. And God said, when I send Messiah, I will not send him through the line of Esau, but I will send him through the line of Jacob. So make sure you look for him as a descendant of Jacob and not Esau. Jacob would have 12 sons. They would become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those sons, his name was Judah. And God said, when I send Messiah that I promised Adam and Eve, that I had promised to Abraham, when I send this hero, this savior, this Messiah, I will send him from the tribe of Judah. And so we're brought face to face with one of the heads of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah. And God said, within the tribe of Judah, there will be a specific line of people from which I will send this hero, this Messiah, this Savior. When you look for him, look for him in the tribe of Judah, but look for him in the line of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of a man you know. You've heard his name before. He was the father of many sons, but one of his sons was David, who became king of Israel. And God would come to David through the prophet Nathan. And Nathan would tell David a promise from God, where God said, David, one day, one day one of your descendants will sit upon a throne and rule over a kingdom that will never end. David, this is the same promise that I made Abraham. This is the same promise that I promised your first parents to in the garden when I promised to send a savior. And so all of a sudden in the Old Testament, we find that this is a story of a man by the name of Abraham who was promised to be the father of a family, of a family that would become a nation and a nation that would become a kingdom. And historically, this absolutely happened It's so persuasive, it's so compelling that when you read the history of the Old Testament and then you lay world history over top of it, it is so moving to see how God put this story together 
that God kept his promise that the nation did become a kingdom in 1050 BC. In 1050 BC, King Saul was made the monarch over the unified tribes of the nation of Israel. And for the next 120 or so years, the kingdom would be intact and the kingdom would flourish. It would begin with Saul and then it would go to David. And then finally, David's son, Solomon. When Solomon died around 930 BC, the kingdom split. The kingdom split between north and south. 10 tribes went north, two tribes went south. To the north, they went by Israel. In the south, they went by Judah. And when the kingdom split, the army split, family split, tribes split, the wealth split, the glory split, the influence of the nation split in two. And all of the sudden, That painful split in the nation made the promise of Abraham seem so unlikely, unrealistic, and for many, unbelievable. How is it that a split kingdom is ever going to bless the world? And this sentiment went to a whole new level in 722 B.C., in 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire invaded the northern kingdom of Israel took those 10 tribes captive, scattered them throughout the empire, and we have never heard from them again. It was an obliterated kingdom. It would never be a kingdom again. And when the Assyrian empire took down the northern kingdom, those in the southern kingdom cowered in fear, waiting for the other shoe to drop because they were looking to the north at the Assyrians who could invade it any day. And they heard rumors over to the east that there was a rising Babylonian empire. So they were scared on both sides. And it was a chaotic time. It was a time when the promise of Abraham seemed absolutely impossible. Be a blessing to the nations. Right now they are a punching bag to the nations. They are afraid of the nations. And it's in the midst of this chaos that God sends the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah shows up and says, I will also make you a light for the who talk to me? Gentiles. It's the Gentiles. And people are listening to this word, this prophecy, this sermon by Isaiah. And it's like, you got to be kidding me. You're, you're You're still talking about that? Do you see what's happening? Our brothers and sisters in the north have been destroyed. The Assyrians may invade. The Babylonians are coming west. We're going to be alike to the Gentiles. Are you kidding me? The Gentiles are beating us into the ground. But Isaiah goes on. So that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah goes on to say that nations... Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And nothing seemed more unrealistic and nothing seemed more unbelievable. The northern kingdom is gone, but God says, don't forget my promise. I'm going to move heaven and I will move earth and I will alter the trajectory of history to make this promise come to pass. Down in the southern kingdom of Judah, They're about to be invaded three different times by the same Babylonian empire. In 605, we talked about it last week, Babylonians came to town. Nebuchadnezzar took Daniel, his three Hebrew friends, and a lot of other people captive back to Babylon. They came back again in 597, and they invaded again just to show their muscle. But in 586 BC, after two years of a siege around the walls of Jerusalem, The Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, they cut off the supply lines into the city of Jerusalem. 
And we're told through the book of Chronicles and in the book of Kings, the history of this nation that we call Israel, that there was a famine inside the city because the Babylonians had cut off all the supply lines. And it was one of the darkest, most evil, most painful times in all of their history. And we're told that things were so bad in the city that men and women had turned to the cannibalism of children, that they were eating horses, that it was so bad inside the city. And then in April of 586, the first soldiers breached the wall of Jerusalem. And when the storm of troops raided into the city of Jerusalem, they decimated it and they destroyed the temple of the Jewish people, God, Jehovah. And who wasn't killed was taken as slaves back to Babylon. And it seemed as though God had forgotten his promise and it seemed as though (laughs) being a light to the Gentiles, that there would be a day when the nation of Abraham would somehow bless the world It seemed impossible. They went away for 70 years. They were captive in Babylon for 70 years, but at the end of 70 years, God had promised them that they would come back. God said, you will be judged. You will be carried off and you'll stay there for 70 years, but at the end of 70 years, I'm gonna bring you back to the land that you were robbed from. And I'm gonna send you back. And when they came back after 70 years of being in Babylon, because a new world ruler, a new empire, the Medo-Persian empire, led by a guy by the name of Cyrus, he had a different leadership style. And he decided to let all the Babylonian captivities go back to their homeland. And when all these Jewish captives went back to the homeland of Israel, they began to rebuild the walls around the city. And ultimately they rebuilt the temple. This temple was not as impressive as Solomon's temple, but they rebuilt the temple and they settled back into some normalcy of life, yet not governing themselves. Now they are ruled by the Medes and the Persians, the puppet of yet another world empire. And it's in this context that God sends the last prophet to Israel. His prophecy is contained in the last book of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. His name is Malachi. And in the midst of them coming back and rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the temple, but yet still under the domination of the Medes and the Persians, Malachi shows up and says, I've got a message from God. And this is what God says. My name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations. In other words, God says, wherever they worship, Wherever there is worship going on in the world, there will be somebody there who worships the Jewish God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the Old Testament ends with a group of people who thinks that sounds silly. A group of conservative folks who probably heard the message of Malachi and says, you're a feel-good preacher. You're always telling us it's going to get better. You're always telling us that there's a better day coming. Look at us. We are the joke of the world. Our God is the joke of the world. It's not happening. And so at the end of the Old Testament, we realize that the Old Testament tells the story of a promise made to Abraham that was personal, generational, national, and ultimately global. 
Once they rebuilt the temple and they settled into life and the Medes and the Persians were ruling and you say, why is this important for us to know? Because this is the story. This is the story as it's told in world history. This is the story as it's told in the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish history. And this is our story. The Medes and the Persians would rule them until 323 BC because there was a young general who was taking 45,000 of his best soldiers and they were marching across the land and they were destroying everyone in their path and his name was Alexander. And Alexander would conquer to the west as far as to the Mediterranean to where Israel and now they have yet another world empire ruling over them. It started with the Assyrians and then it was the Babylonians, then it was the Medes and the Persians and now it's the Greeks. Alexander will die in just a few years. His kingdom will be split up between four generals. One of those generals will control Palestine because they do not govern themselves. They are the slave nation. They are the puppet people. And this will culminate in some of the bloodiest times somewhere around 163 BC. A Syrian king, a Seleucid king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes made a joke of the Jewish God, made a joke of the Jewish people. They had always said that if you went into the holiest of holies and if you weren't the high priest and it wasn't the day of atonement, that God would kill you. But Antiochus Epiphanes walked into the holiest of holies and he placed a pig, an unclean pig in the Jewish mind on the altar and he worshiped it to Zeus. And he made Jehovah a joke. And you gotta think how the people felt you got to know emotionally that those promises seem so impossible. We are oppressed. We have been violated. We are abused. Bless the world? Not a chance. And to add insult to injury, in 63 BC, the Greeks would be overtaken by the Romans. And Pompey the Great would ride into the city of Jerusalem. And he would ride his horse, as Tacitus, the Roman historian tells us, he would ride his horse up the southern steps. He would trot into the holy place and even into the holiest of holies. He would go behind the veil. And as history tells us, he looked around and he laughed. And he came out and said, there's no one back there. And in that moment, 12,000 Jewish priests committed suicide for the blasphemy that happened in that moment. And again, Jehovah had been made a joke. And the people who had descended from Abraham, a man who had been given a promise that one day his descendants would bless the nation, have become the laughing stock of the nation. But God, in the darkness, in the silence, in the unlikeliness of it all, God is moving history in a direction to where he will keep his promise. That God is bringing everything to bear. That God is moving all the pieces of the puzzle together. He started in Eden. And all the way he's been orchestrating and architecting this story that he is telling to the world. And he brings it to this moment to when the Romans come to town. And the Pax Romana is signed that there's peace in the Roman Empire. And it's a time on earth that the world has never ever encountered. The highway system explodes. Travel is easy. 
A port system is built which connects all the major population centers in the Roman Empire. There is a common language, Koine Greek, the common language of the people. There is a common culture. The Greek Hellenistic culture and the Roman culture is everywhere. Everything is just ripe for God to keep his promise. And that's what the Apostle Paul observed when he looked back on history. He said it this way. He said, but when the fullness of time had come or the set time had fully come, God then sent his son. That when nobody cared, everybody had given up on the promise and nobody was looking, God kept a promise that was thousands of years old. God sent his savior. God sent the hero that he first promised to Adam and Eve, to Abraham and to David to the nation of Israel, God had sent the Messiah because the time was right. When this happened, something else significant began to happen. From the time that Jesus was born, there was a now understood connection between Jesus and the Old Testament. And there was the beginning of this idea, this belief that perhaps, possibly, the Old Testament all along had been pointing to one person, that the history of one nation was really about the promise to all the nations, that the Old Testament was about one individual, the one we call Jesus of Nazareth. And this was a belief that we see happening from the very infancy of Jesus, because when they took Jesus to the temple, Mary and Joseph, to dedicate him, a priest held him in his arms, and it says, Simeon, this priest, took Jesus in his arms, and praise God saying, Sovereign Lord, you have promised. You may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. And then listen to what this priest says. Which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. God, you have brought history to bear. You have orchestrated empires. You've put them in power. You've taken them out of power. You've put kings on thrones and you have put them off of thrones. God, all of history is in this. In the sight of all nations, a light, a revelation to the who? The Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Mary and Joseph listened and it says they marveled. Then Jesus grew and matured into an adult. He launched his public ministry, began to perform miracles, and all of a sudden, people began to take note. And people began to believe that he was the Messiah, that he was the deliverer that God had promised all through the history of the world. So much so that even his first followers, like Philip, who went to a guy by the name of Nathaniel and said, Nathaniel, you need to come meet this guy, Jesus. He is the one. Which one, Philip? The one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. And even Jesus was under the impression that the Old Testament ultimately was pointing to him. Jesus looked at the Pharisees one day and he said, you study the scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament scriptures. You search them diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that what? Testify about me. And the religious leaders missed it. The religious leaders didn't recognize the Messiah when he stood in front of them. And they were the ones who knew the parts best. They knew that the Old Testament had promised that when he comes, 
He will descend from the line of Jesse. He will be out of the family of David. When Messiah comes, he'll be born in Bethlehem. When Messiah shows up, he'll be born to a virgin. When Messiah shows up, he will start his ministry in Galilee. He will perform miracles. When Messiah comes, he will be betrayed by a friend. The prophet said that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He would be betrayed. He would be delivered over into the hands of authorities. That he would come into Jerusalem on a donkey. That ultimately Messiah would have his hands and his feet pierced according to Psalm 22. They knew all of that. And they watched it play out in front of them and they missed it. They missed the point because they were so engrossed in the parts. And when Jesus died and came back to life, he preached one last sermon to two men on the road to Emmaus. They were talking about what had happened with Jesus, that he had died. They thought and hoped that he had been the Messiah. And they were talking about how early that morning, some women, silly women, went to the tomb and said, the tomb's empty. And they had no idea what was going on. And Jesus is quite humorous, the story. He shows up. They don't recognize him. And they're telling him about all this stuff that's happened. And then Jesus butts into the conversation and he says this. He said, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then I love this. If there's instant replay in heaven, and I think there will be, I am absolutely going to pull this one up on demand. It says that Jesus said, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as he walked with those two guys on the road to Emmaus, And as they once thought that Jesus was Messiah, but they'd watched him die and they really didn't believe the accounts of the resurrection. He revealed himself to them and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he showed them all the things that ultimately pointed to him. They knew the parts, but they had missed the point. And perhaps he said, gentlemen, Do you remember in the garden? Do you remember when God promised our first parents, Adam and Eve, that one day a savior would come? It was talking about me. And do you remember when God promised a man by the name of Abraham that one day his descendant would bless the world? Guys, it was talking Think about all of those sacrifices, all of those lambs, and all of those turtle doves, and think about all of those goats and bullocks. Every sacrifice that was offered on a Jewish altar, guys, it was pointing to me. Every time a high priest went behind the veil and placed blood on the mercy seat, it was a picture of what I was coming to do. When Moses led the nation of Israel out of Egypt, away from the bondage and the slavery of Pharaoh. It was a picture that I had come to deliver people, men and women, boys and girls, from the tyranny of sin and death. Guys, when you read the story of Joseph and it talks about that he was loved by his father, he was hated by his brothers, he was sold into slavery, he was falsely accused, he was thrown into the pit until he was exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. Guys, That's my story. When you read about manna falling from heaven, it was pointing to me because I am the bread of life. 
And when you read about water coming out of a rock in the midst of the desert, I am the rock and I am the water. Guys, everything you read back there, it's talking about me. When it says Noah built an ark and he was saved, I was a picture of that ark. That was me. When it says that Jonah swallowed up by a fish and was in there three days and three nights, it was talking about me. And when David went out there and he killed Goliath, it was talking about me. And he showed them, beginning with Moses and the prophets, everything concerning himself. And then Jesus ascended into heaven and the Christians of the New Testament got it. They finally understood that a lot of those things that didn't make sense and they were nonsensical and they just couldn't put one and one together and come up with two. They all of a sudden realized that all along, it just wasn't the history of one nation. It was the promise to all the nations that Jesus was the point of. And now all of a sudden, the Old Testament makes perfect sense. So much so that Peter stands up on Pentecost and says, but this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through. All the prophets, this isn't new. This is what God's been talking about from the very beginning. And even Paul, as he traveled around the Roman Empire and the Mediterranean Rim, planting church after church after church after church, it says of Paul, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. So what's so wonderful about all that? Because the promise started in the very beginning that God, before you were ever born, before you could ever sin, before you could ever fail or disappoint, before the bottom could ever fall out in your life, before your parents, before your grandparents, when there were only two, our first parents, Adam and Eve, God, even then, had chosen to love you. And God had decided, even before you had the chance to walk away, that even though you were going to walk away, he was coming after you. And even though you were going to rebel, before you even had a chance to rebel, he decided that he was going to give you grace and forgiveness. From the very beginning, you have been in the heart of God. And the story that he has been telling is a part of your story. You have been a part of the story from the very beginning. The scriptures in the end tell the story of how God, from the very beginning, had decided to love us until the very end. And the good news is, even beyond. Because the point of it all isn't you, and the point of it all isn't me. The point of it all in the end is Jesus. That it's all about Jesus. It always has been all about Jesus. It is still all about Jesus. And it will forever always be about Jesus. That he is the hero of the story. He is the savior of mankind. And he delivers us 
from the tyranny of sin and death. A promise that God made in the beginning, the very beginning, and he moved heaven and earth to bring it to pass. And that is the greatest hit of all. Father, I pray we would just be overwhelmed that we weren't just a part of the story in our lifetime. We're in the New Testament for that matter, but we have always been part of the story. You have always loved us. You have loved us with a never-ending love, an everlasting love, an eternal love, that before we could ever do anything wrong, sinful, rebellious, you had decided to love us anyway. You saw us as we were before we were. You knew our worst moment. You knew the most shameful, the most painful things that we would ever do. And you promised, knowing what all of that looked like, you promised that you were coming after us and that you were gonna bring us back into the family. Jesus, we worship you. We honor you. We glorify you. May we be overwhelmed at such a great salvation that we have been invited to be a part of, that Jesus is the point of. In Jesus' name.